Please stand and pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning, expectant of your presence and meeting Jesus in the word read and preached, and certainly around the table this morning, Father. And so we pray that you would pour out your presence among us, pour out your spirit to empower and aliven and bring about further transformation into the image of Christ this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, <clears throat> good morning. So glad to see you all here as we are coming towards the end of summer. Wasn't this week so wonderful with the weather? Oh. My goodness. I've never been in, a, in August anywhere south of Virginia that had such a beautiful week in, in, in August. Um, so wonderful. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. Uh, if you grab a pew Bible, you can do that as well to Acts chapter 16. That's where we're going to be this morning. Thank you, Ingrid, for reading for us. That was uh, uh, beautifully read. So we've been in Acts this summer, and throughout this book, we have seen the power of God at work in and through the church to proclaim, in word and deed, the good news about Jesus. That he is, here's the good news, that he is alive from the dead, and that he is the king in heaven over all the earth. God, we see God in this book transforming people by the power of his grace to embrace this good news news about Jesus. And by God's grace, people are made new in Christ. New people, redeemed by Christ, reconciled to the Father, do what? New things. They live in new ways. So when we embrace Jesus, we become citizens, citizens of God's kingdom that is coming on earth as it is in heaven, just like we pray each week in the Lord's Prayer. And as citizens of God's kingdom, he empowers us by his grace he empowers us by his grace and the Holy Spirit to live out the culture, the way of life of the kingdom as a means, right? as a primary means by which we bear witness to Jesus and the good news that makes us new. New life, resurrection life, that's the good news that we receive. When we embrace the good news about Jesus, that he's alive from the dead, and that he is king, God awakens us. He makes us new. And with this newness of our lives that are transformed and transforming, we point to that reality of the resurrection. When we live in new ways, redeemed ways, we point to the reality of the resurrection at work in this world. It communicates the gospel. And this is why Luke writes the book of Acts to form and shape communities that bear witness to Jesus in all of their lives, not only just in word, but also in their deeds, in their actions, in their habits, in their practices, in their way of life. He writes this book to form, as we looked at in our first sermon in this series, to form a particular culture within the communities that embrace the gospel. In Acts, Luke writes a narrative that presents pictures and portraits of the lives of regular folks completely and utterly transformed by Jesus when they encounter him. Whether that's in the preaching of Paul or Peter, or whether that's just in word of mouth, other people that have been transformed going out in their daily business, people, when they encounter Jesus in the lives of his saints, they become transformed, awakened, new life is born. And our lesson this morning from Acts 16 presents two such portraits of lives transformed by God's grace. In this passage, we see the power of God's grace transforming Lydia 
and transforming the Philippian jailer. And immediately, the evidence of this transformation is seen in their actions. It's seen in their actions that embody a new culture in contrast to the Greco-Roman cultures that are on offer there in Philippi. And something new has just broken into the world there at Philippi with the transformation of Lydia and this Philippian jailer. In particular, we see Lydia and the Philippian jailer practicing Christian hospitality. That's the evidence that something new has happened. That's the evidence that God's kingdom has shown up there in Philippi, establishing a beachhead in that city. We see that. Their acts of hospitality embody on earth the culture of God's heavenly kingdom. And their embodiment on earth of this heavenly culture stands in stark contrast. Stark contrast to the dark forces at work in Philippi that we see there in the middle of that passage that was read for us. Acts 16 is about Christian hospitality. And here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us, as we are listening to this, as we listen to the text, as we go out from here, I want us to pray to God and ask him two things. One, I want us to ask God, expand our imaginations around our homes and around hospitality, practices and acts of hospitality in our lives. And then I want us to also ask that God, we don't want to just leave it as an expanded imagination, because what good is that? Unless God also gives us the grace and the strength that we need to put that imagination into practice in our homes and in our lives, practicing evidence of the new creation, practicing evidences of God's creation at work in this world and through us. And God loves to send his spirit to do the very things he has called us to do. And he has called us to be hospitable. Christian homes are to be hospitals. Not in the, the modern sense per se of what Baptist is, but in the ancient sense of a shelter for the needy. The English word hospital comes from a 13th century French word that means just simply a shelter for the needy. Where hostel comes from this, hospital, all these places have this idea of care for those who are in need. Weary's travelers the injured, the invalid, places that provide care for the needy. This is what a, a Christian home is to be, an oasis in the midst of our world to provide the care, the warmth, the hospitality of God to those in need around us. Our homes are to be these types of hospitals, shelters for the needy where we extend God's hospitable care. And this is exactly how we see Lydia and the Philippian jailer using their homes in Acts 16. And in this passage, we see four truths about Christian hospitality that we want to highlight this morning, that we want to use to fuel that prayer that God would take this and expand our imaginations and give us the boldness and the strength and the courage to act, to be hospitable. First is that Christian hospitality is rooted in divine hospitality. Divine hospitality is simply this. It is the work of God's grace whereby he transforms those alienated and estranged from him by sin. He transforms them through adoption to be beloved sons and daughters, beloved children. That's what his hospitality does. Jesus comes in Luke 4 proclaiming what? 
Luke 4, in the, in, the, in the synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus comes and he quotes Isaiah. And at the end of that passage, he comes proclaiming the year of the Lord's favorable welcome. He comes proclaiming, God welcomes you. Turn to him. Turn to him. So divine hospitality is this act of grace whereby God transforms us from aliens into sons and daughters. From dead into the living. Right? Isn't that what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. But verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy and out of his great love, made you alive together with Christ. Divine hospitality. This is the transforming work of God's grace, which we see in the lives of Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their households. Just listen, for example, to verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She was a, she was a convert from a pagan convert, a Gentile convert to Judaism. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, to be loyal, to be a, a, a true believer, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Notice that God's grace opens her heart to receive the good news about Jesus. And through baptism, God's grace transforms her from life to death. From one estranged, alienated, and now through the waters of baptism, a child of God. His grace at work through the word preached the good news and through the grace of baptism. Isn't that what we proclaim every time someone is baptized in this church? After the baptism, we say, let us welcome the newly baptized. And we welcome them as new members of our family. They have been transformed, literally transformed by God's grace in the waters of baptism as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters. It's God's divine hospitality. It's his grace at work in their lives. Similarly, in verses 30 through 33, we see God's grace at work in the Philippian jailer. We see it similarly through the word of the Lord preached. He says, how can I be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what do they do? They preach, they tell him the word of the Lord. And not only that, he's what? He's baptized. By God's grace, by God's grace, by God's divine hospitality, this Philippian jailer is transformed from an alienated pagan Gentile into a beloved son and daughter of the king. Just like that. Isn't that miraculous? That's wonderful. That's lovely. That's good news. You see, the gospel proclaimed and received, and baptism duly administered as God's front porch welcome. God's front porch welcome of strangers into his family and his kingdom. And he stands with arms open wide to welcome all who will step onto his porch and to receive his grace. Receive the word preach and through the waters of baptism be transformed as a member of his family. A citizen of his kingdom. So that's the first thing. Christian hospitality is rooted in divine hospitality that transforms us from alienated folks, estranged folks, 
to sons and daughters of a loving father, a loving divine father, and of a brother. We have a brother in Jesus who loves us and has given everything for us. But second, Christian hospitality freely extends God's hospitality. So we've received God's hospitality. Now we extend that hospitality. We give that back. The transformation of Lydia and the Philippian jailer is demonstrated in their acts of hospitality. Immediately we see new life. Immediately we see fruit. Lydia receives God's welcome. She is transformed by his grace. And now as a member of God's family, she extends hospitality to others. She urges Paul and his companions to come and stay at her home for as long as they need. Make my home your base of operations here in Philippi. That was at great risk. It's at great cost. She's asking at least four grown men to stay in her place, and she's going to feed them, give them shelter and food for as long as they need in Philippi. Come to my house and stay. Stay. She is committing herself to care for them and her household, to care for them, to give them shelter and food for as long as they are there. In fact, her home, as we see in verse 40, her home became the meeting place of the church. Because where do Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke go when they're released from prison? They go back to Lydia's home and they say farewell to the brothers, to the church there, and they depart, they leave the city. Similarly, in verses 30 through 34, the transformation wrought by God's grace and hospitality in the Philippian jailer is demonstrated in his hospitality. Right? The hospitality that he now gives washing, cleaning, Mending the wounds of these four men who had been beaten by the mob. He washes their wounds and not only that, he invites them into his home. As small and as humble as it was because he just lived in a one-room apartment above the jail. And these jails were not nice. He invites them into his home and he sets before them a meal. Surely the best that he could offer. This jailer is transformed by God's grace, by, his divine, by this divine hospitality. And now he is giving, he's extending that divine hospitality to others. And likewise for us who have received God's welcome and have been transformed by his grace and weekly benefit from God's hospitality around this table, right? God is always standing ready to give us what we need to nourish and send us back out along our way. So we who weekly gain and receive the benefit of God's hospitality, we are to likewise freely extend that hospitality to others, to all. Freely extend God's welcome to all. Because if there's anything that we see in the contrast between Lydia and the Philippian jailer is that it's a fairly broad spectrum of folk. Lydia is a woman. Philippian jailer is a man. She's a wealthy merchant. He's a poor working class prison guard. She's a Jewish convert. He's a pagan Gentile. She's probably quite respectable. He's probably really gruff and dirty, maybe a bit smelly at times. Two totally different people. But in that spectrum between them, we see that God's hospitality is offered to all sorts of people, all types. And we likewise are to freely give hospitality to all as we encounter them, as they have need. So we've seen that 
Christian hospitality is, is rooted in divine hospitality. And that Christian hospitality extends God's hospitality to others. And then third, Christian homes, as we mentioned earlier, are to be hospitals, shelters for the needy. Just look at Acts 16, verse 15. She simply says, come to my house. Come to my house. Verse 34, then he brought them, the Philippian jailer, then he brought them into his house. And he set food before them. The home is key. It's central. It's the base of operations for Christian hospitality. Our homes are to be epicenters of God's hospitality extended to those who are alienated and estranged from him. Our homes are to be the places where folks can come and sample heaven. Where they can experience the new life of God's kingdom in lives transformed. Such a home will be marked by several characteristics as we see here in the text. This home, this Christian home, is a place of lodging and rest. Verse 16, come to my house and stay. Just stay. This is a place of lodging and rest. Our homes can be places where God's rest is made tangible. You know, Jesus, Jesus gives us rest in its fullness, but that also includes our bodies. He gives us rest. Rest weary of weary souls, wearied bodies, and our homes can be a place where that rest is made tangible, not only for ourselves, but for others who are weary. Come and stay. Come and stay. Our homes can be shelters from the outside world, havens and safe harbors amid a storm-tossed world where we can find strength and be rejuvenated. Second, a Christian home is a place of healing and restoration. Just look at verse 33. This Philippian jailer takes them and he washes their wounds. He washes their wounds. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Our homes can be places where we tend to those who are wounded. Our homes will be places where we tend to those who are wounded, whether physically spiritually, emotionally, however that is, our homes are to be places, they're to be hospitals where the needy can find shelter and restoration and healing. Because is this not what God does for us when he extends to us divine hospitality? Does he not heal and restore us? Likewise, our homes are to be such places, places where we make tangible again we make tangible to others the healing that we have received from God in very tangible ways. Come. If you are weary, come. Broken, come. Please find here healing and restoration that God provides. The third mark of this Christian home, this hospital, is that it is a place of feasting and joy. It is a place marked by feasting and joy. Verse 34. He brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his whole household because they had believed in God. Our homes need to be marked by feasting and joy in anticipation of when God will restore all things and set his grand banquet table. Yeah. Our homes ought to be marked by that. That doesn't mean it's always feasting and joy. There are times where we need to heal up the broken, bind them up. Put salve on their wounds. But then there are times when healing has taken place and we need to set the table and feast. 
Because God has made the world for us to enjoy. In Genesis 1, God, he makes, have, he makes the humans, and then what does he do? What does he give them? He gives them the entire world as one massive banquet table. He says, take and eat. It's all yours. Feast upon creation. And this feast is to make us glad, to give us joy. That's why God gives us grapes and has enabled us as humans to make it into wine. The psalmist says wine is for our joy, to gladden men's hearts, to gladden women's hearts. God has given us a world to feast, and our homes need to be marked by such feasting and joy. Certainly fasting as well, but there needs to be feasting and joy in these homes. In our homes and around our tables, we are to feast joyfully in anticipation of God's return, his full presence here on earth. Don't you want a home like that? I know I want our home to be like that. All this culminates into this. A Christian home is a place where strangers are transformed into guests. Where strangers are transformed into guests. And guests are invited to become sons and daughters of the king. That's what our homes are offering, folks. Come. No longer be a stranger. Become a welcome guest. And as a welcome guest, know that God loves you. He welcomes you into his family. Become a child of his. And I think nothing describes this type of home maybe more adequately than Tolkien's description of Rivendell in Lord of the Rings. If you know the books or if you've just seen the movies, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But there in, in the Fellowship of the Rings, Frodo says this, or the narrator says this. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea, right before they go into the Misty Mountains, you'll remember. That house was, as Bilbo long ago reported, a perfect house, where whether you like food or sleep, or storytelling or singing, or just sitting and thinking best, or a pleasant mixture of all of them, merrily to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. When our homes embody the hospitality of God. When our homes embody the hospitality of God, they become places where God cures weariness, where God cures fear and sadness, where he removes shame and takes away guilt. Our homes become such places where people can find rest and healing and can find joy. That's what God calls us to be. It's a beautiful picture. I think it's true. I know it's true. It's good and it's beautiful and he invites us to it. And now finally, Christian hospitality, and this is where it gets, I think, cool, really neat. Christian hospitality participates in Christ's resurrection victory over the dark spiritual and cultural forces that hold many captives. This gives significance to our little acts of kindness and hospitality. Don't ever think that inviting someone into your home, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member, and extending to them hospitality lacks cosmic significance. It, it is full of significance because it participates in Christ's redemption, his victory over these cosmic forces of, of evil in our world. 
And so when we practice hospitality in our homes, we are indeed participating in Jesus' victory. Notice that Luke presents the hospitality of Lydia and the hospitality of the Philippian jailer as bookends that encapsulate three dark cultural forces. In verses 16 through 18, we see the dark spiritual forces. Dark spiritual forces are present in Philippi, which held this young girl captive. In our world, there are still dark spiritual forces at work. For many of us trained in the West that have gone to college, we are sons and daughters of the Enlightenment and modernity. When we hear something like that, we're like fairy tales. Please know, please know how arrogant that is. You are one of a small minority of people in this world who think that. Most people in this world know, intuitively know, that there is darkness and there are spiritual forces of good and evil at work in this world. Remove the blinders of our culture. There are dark spiritual forces at work in this world that hold captive and paralyze folks. And these are the folks we need in our homes. These are the folks that needs Christian hospitality offered to them so that they can find welcome and freedom by God's grace and power. The second dark force we see are dark economic forces in verse 19. These, these people who owned this slave girl who was held captive by a demon, they're pretty upset when Paul releases her of this demon. And they say, and the text says, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Their hope of financial gain is gone. These forces are still present. Don't we, I think we know that. Isn't it clearly evident all across our world that there are still dark economic forces present today when people and companies devalue persons for profit? There are times when the gospel, and this is true, there are times when the gospel will impact profitability. There are times when the gospel will impact our savings, our bank account, because hospitality is costly. Because divine hospitality is costly. And there are times when, when, when the gospel will affect and impact our retirement. Christian hospitality offers a different way to dark economic forces. It embodies a counter-narrative. It embodies a different vision about what is good and true and beautiful in our world. It says the way to true gain is through self-sacrificing hospitality. Giving up ourselves for the sake of others so that they can find rest and healing and hear the welcome of God. And then finally, in verses 20 through 24, we see dark forces of religious and political prejudice at work in Philippi to silence the proclamation of God's welcome. Paul and his companions are dragged before the magistrates of the city and accused of being Jews, an ethnic and religious designation. Not only just Jews, but Jews who peddled an anti-Roman sentiment. And that was a big deal in a Roman colony. That was a really big deal in a Roman colony to be trying to undercut the empire. These people were, were, were obsessed with wanting to be uh, in good favor with Rome. 
And so they weren't going to handle or weren't going to withstand any of this anti-Roman sentiment in their city. And these dark forces are still present in fallen human cultures today in our own. And we as God's people are susceptible to all of them. Whether it's spiritual darkness, whether it's dark economic forces, or whether it's religious or political prejudice, we are all susceptible to them. And all of these work against hospitality. But on the other side of it, hospitality works against all these dark forces. And that's the beauty of what Luke presents here in Acts 16. For when we embody God's hospitality, our homes become living testimonies. Living testimonies, embodiments to the new life of God's kingdom. They become tangible oases of God's grace that frees and gives rest and heals and restores and transforms one's identity from a stranger to a guest to a beloved child. That's what's possible. That's what's possible in your home. That's what Jesus and the spirit that he gives you will make real and tangible in your home. I know, there is, I know there's all kinds of risk. I know there is fear in all of this. But God is calling us all to it. He's equipped us in various ways for it. Your home is not too small. You don't have little. God will give you everything you need to be hospitable to those you encounter along the way. When we practice hospitality, our homes become advanced signs of God's heavenly kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And I want us to ask God to reveal, to reveal one or two practices of hospitality that we can engage in. And I want us to ask God's spirit to give us the strength, the boldness, the courage to act on what we see, what he leads us to see as places where we can be hospitable and make our homes a sanctuary of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray today and this week that God would do that? Expand your imagination and give you the strength and courage to act on it? We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.